Take your Bibles tonight and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, we're going to read the first seven verses. Revelation 2 and verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you're you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What causes people to be apathetic? I'm going to get someone who's not Tim Raver. You're not apathetic. Come up here. Tim's going to give us a chance to have you say a few things tonight. Raise your hand. What causes apathy? Apathy is a word, negative particle, ah, pathos. Right? means no passion. Um, another word, you probably haven't heard of it, um, acedia, which means indifference, lethargy. Kind of like, ugh, you're only doing it because you want to get it done. That kind of an attitude. What, what causes that? What brings on apathy in anyone's life? I'm not specifically thinking Christian, but it could be that as well. But why do you think people get apathetic? Without, they lose their passion. They lose their zeal uh, for things, and especially God at times. What do you think that happens? Yeah, they, get, they get comfortable. They get Com- comfortable. Yeah, comfortable. You don't want to change that. Okay, you like where you are. You don't want to yeah. make any different. Things are going great. Why, why rock the boat? Yeah, there you go. Comfortable. That's a good one. Ray, right there next to you, Tim. Yeah. I, I think sometimes regarding with God, some people cast their expectations on what they want on God. And when he doesn't do by their will, they kind of don't understand why. They expect God to work on their timetable. Okay. Why am I going to do all this hard work and get so intense about things if it doesn't turn out the way I want it to? Gotcha. Sandy. Kind of um, off of what Ray just said, is getting rejected by this promotion or um, this person, or, and they, they give up. You know, they just... Life is hard, and, and why, why keep pushing for that job or whatever? Um, because it's the rejection. Okay, rejection, going uphill too long. Too much work, too hard, 
too many obstacles and they lose their passion for it. Someone else. Someone else. I can't throw the mic up there, buddy. <laughs> Someone else. Tom, over here on my left, my friend. Now think about this while he's going over there. What are some, what are the areas where you think a lot of people struggle most with apathy? What area of their Christian life would they be most likely to be apathetic in? Go ahead, Tom first. There's a lot of repetitiveness and nothing exciting or different happening. You can easily get into a rut and become apathetic. Okay, you can get in a comfortable, you like it so much, but you can get in a place where you're just a rut, you start going through the motions, it just becomes mechanical, no? So, if that's being the case, what are the areas you think Christians might be more likely than any others to become apathetic? What are some of the places that people might struggle the most in when it comes to being apathetic? What, what might be some areas for some people? Yep, Je- I'm sorry, James. Um, for me personally, I have to be honest, it has to be my prayer life. It's, okay. When everything goes well, it's really hard for us sometimes to remember to seek God. I mean, usually through trials, we go straight to God, but when everything is going well, we tend to say, oh yeah, everything's good. So that's something that's a constant struggle, not just for me, but I know for many Christians, just to gotta stay in, in, in prayer and also stay in, in your scriptures. Okay, so let's link that up. You get comfortable and things are going well, so you don't think you need to pray or you get a little apathetic about prayer. See? There's a connection, right? What another one? What, what areas might people struggle in in their Christian life and have to fight off apathy? What's another one? Sarah, Joy, and she oh. she did that on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> Dawn. I was going to say spreading the word of the gospel. Okay, evangelism, right? It might be hard. You might, you know, to use the other one, right? Go uphill, right? Difficult obstacles and witnessing to people, so you kind of get uh about it. That's what she was going to say. Is that what you're going to say? Okay. Okay, good. He's not walking all the way back there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else. Sandy. See how nice she was? Caring about others. If, if we're going through something ourselves and we become so self-absorbed, um, we, we forget about other people. Yes. Yep. You can forget about other people. You just don't care. You heard the joke, right? What's the difference between ignorance, apathy, and ambivalence? I don't know. I don't care about either one of them. And that can happen. You can just stop caring altogether. And that, that can stop you from, or actually lead you down a path of apathy toward people, which would be maybe one of the worst ones. No? Service. Service. Um, you know, I think of the Iwana leaders and, you know, how long they've been serving it's easy to get apathetic, you know. Well, I've been doing it for 35 years, and do I really want to do it again? These kids are—they're just getting younger, <laughs> and so you know. But, you got 35 uh, more years in you, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Thank you very much, Tim. Appreciate that. Um, I'm not recommending it, but if you've ever seen a 
Seinfeld issue, uh, or, or uh, one of the series on TV, you'll find, crazy enough, and I read an article, it's a show about nothing. Um, a show that is about petty things, and the writer said, Seinfeld has normalized indifference toward meaningful things in life. Indifference was the name of the game. Seinfeld made it fashionable not to care about significant things. And then the author said this, we live in a Seinfeldian society. And by what he meant by that is, is that we love all the things that are good and right and are worthy of our effort and time. But he goes on to say that we have a problem lifting a finger to do anything about it. And so we love to say that we care, but to actually do something about it. And he said one really challenging statement. I thought this was really good. He said, for too many of us, and he meant Christians, life is a show about nothing. And he said this, and this is a good exercise. You should probably try to do this sometime. He said, on a piece of paper, write out your 10 most foundational basic convictions about what's important in life. Put them all on this side. I did it on mine, my paper, and I just put things, God is first in my life. I need to read my Bible and pray regularly. Faithful go to church and worship and fellowship is non-negotiable. I want to live on mission every day. I believe people around me are going to hell. I should give 10% minimally to the Lord, my finances. I should be regularly serving God. Holiness is essential. Loving God and loving others is foundational. I mean, and there's, my greatest aim is to be like Jesus. I mean, if you put those 10, if those were yours or whatever ones you have, you put them, these are my convictions. Then he said this, right over here, what your commitment is to do them. And he says, you'll find out what you really care about or if you don't care about them. Because it's easy to write them in this column and not be doing much about them on this column. And he found with the people that he interviewed or surveyed that their convictions are not really their convictions, that they turn out to be conveniences. Because here's what he said about apathy. Apathy is feeling without doing. And he says in the Bible... When someone is zealous or fervent, it's always accompanied by action. And so he said, that's the problem, is that our commitments don't match our convictions. And he says, and when that stops, we start being apathetic in our lives. Um, a lot of things you can look on the internet about apathy. Um, one of them is the... Um, Babylon B. Have you ever heard of that? Anybody heard of the Babylon B? It's a satirical kind of like um, making fun of Christian things that are so wacky that they actually exist, but you, you really can't believe that they do. And one of them was newspaper headings. They were made up. These are made up ones. But he said, Christian, not sure why he should look forward to heaven because he already lives in America. Christian artist renounces faith now that Jesus has served his purpose in giving him fame and fortune. In other words, they become apathetic because they already have everything America can offer and God already gave them what they really wanted. So why they become apathetic about God? And go, ah, why bother? Why bother? Revelation chapter 2. 
It, tells, it talks to some of the issues that we've been thinking about tonight a little bit, about some of the causes, and I would say, if you would look, put it in this way, some of the cures for apathy. Dorothy Sayer, a famous author, she said this about apathy. Apathy is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds pur- purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there's nothing to die for. And now that's a pretty strong uh, definition of apathy, but you know what she's trying to get at. In our text, the, the, this, the verse starts in this, in chapter 2, and I'm going to put it in context because it's crucial to us. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, a, the fourth biggest city in the Roman Empire in the first century, the fourth biggest one, obviously Rome was the biggest, and then Alexandria was second, and there was another one, I'm trying to figure out if I remember which one it was, for the third city. But then the fourth city was Ephesus. About, we would say today about a quarter of a million people, maybe about two and a half times bigger than Hamilton, which was a big city back in those days. Very, very high, rich, wealthy city. And in that city, there were a lot of temples and a lot of other religions, Roman-based and backed religions. And in the middle of all that, John um, gets this revelation, although he's on Patmos, but he's writing to a church that's right in the thick of Caesar worship and worldliness on a level that would be par with America. And here's how it starts. So I'm going to give you this. He says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I'm going to say it to you this way. And you live in Ephesus, the temptation would be, and this is a quote from an author I read Live in one of the wild west of small narratives, meaning there are so many competing narratives that you can live your life at and the story that you would live in. Here's what John says. If as a Christian in Hamilton area, in our day in which we live, if you want to keep from being apathetic, you have to learn to live in the right story. Because there were competing narratives and stories that everyone who lived in Ephesus was, and and they're all the same ones today. You could have money, the fame, the power. These are all small narratives that you can choose. But what they needed was, and what you and I need as Christians at Faith Baptist Church in our day, in our town, we need a larger, all unifying story that brings everything in life together and makes sense of everything. Because they have a lot to make sense of. And you're going to see it in a second. Because they're being persecuted and they're suffering. And they're starting to lose things. And there's a cost for being a Christian. And you're going to find as the years progress and Jesus doesn't come back if that's true. That that we're going to find ourselves in that same position. And so the, the scripture says, here's what you need. Here's one of the causes of apathy. Is that you forget what story you're in, and that Jesus is at the center of the story of God, and that's the one you're in. Because chapter 1, leading up to it, is a full revelation of John seeing Jesus in all of his splendor. He's got eyes like a flame of fire, hair as white as snow. He's got the brat. All the things that describe Jesus are so amazing and so beyond John that when he sees Jesus in his total majesty and splendor, it says he falls down at his feet as if he was dead. Can I tell you this? If you don't have a vision of Jesus 
for as great and powerful and awesome as he is, you will find yourself very easily becoming apathetic, not moved by anything, and being very comfortable in living in a small narrative that Hamilton has to offer, just like they would in Ephesus. And can I tell you this? Listen to me. That living in a church and being in a church and even being active in a church and teaching in Sunday school and working in the nursery and being a deacon or whatever else it might be won't stop that from happening. And I'm going to show you in a minute because he's going to give a commendation to this church. He's going to tell them, hey, I know you patiently endure and I know you do all these works and I know that you've done this and you've suffered and I know all of that, but I've got a problem with you, he says. You're apathetic. He's going to tell them that. And he's going to call it, you left the love that you had at first. So the first thing you have to do is to go larger. And that I mean this. You've got to see yourself and teach our children every day. We are not in the Ephesus, or we would say the Hamilton story. We are in the Jesus story. And this is who he is. Look at him. Look how amazing. Get a vision and understanding. And this is why we need to read our Bibles and pray. You can't get apathetic about that. You know why we need the Bible and prayer? Because that's where we keep before us the story and the awesome greatness of who Jesus is. And if you don't have that every day, you're going to find yourself becoming apathetic. And you're going to lose your care and concern because the vision won't be of Jesus at the center. It will be you at the center. It'll be your children at the center. See, it says in verse 1, he's got the seven stars in his right hand. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. See, he's here in our church. Did you know that? He's here in our church. He, He doesn't just look from heaven and say, that's my church. He walks here. You know what that means? He's looking. He's inspecting. He's seeing. He knows. He knows what Faith Baptist Church is like. He knows what you are like. In fact, one of the first things that's going to stay about Jesus and all of his greatness is I know, I know all of you. And he can tell you all the things that you're doing right and he can see all the things that you're doing wrong. And see, if you don't see him, not only in his transcendence, he is amazing, chapter one, but you see him in his imminence. See, he's close. He walks here. He comes to all the services, even when you don't. He's here. See, he sees the reality of who we are. He sees, can I say it, below the veneer. He understands more than what on the surface that other people see about you. He understands all of that. And if we don't see Jesus as great as he is and up close as he is, we'll become apathetic. See, Jesus holds every church in his right hand. He holds the pastors and the people in his hands and the churches in his hands. So we have to know what story we're in and live in it every day. Verse number two, he sees this. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Now watch, these words, works, he's going to say it down in verse five. Remember, therefore, I'm sorry, verse four, but I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love, the love that you had at first. And he says, the works that you have, You see, verse 5, you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Exact same phraseology. The only words that are switched are love and works. So they were doing, let's put it this way, 21st century vernacular. They were doing ministry. See, Pastor Walker, I'm not apathetic. I do ministry. Right? I, I do Awana. I do Children's Junior Church. I do this. I do that. And I've done it 
right? We've all done it. He says, you do works, that's good. And the word your toil means to labor to the point of exhaustion. It's the same word used in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, I worked harder than them all. So it's not that they're not working hard. It's not that they don't come to early to things and stay late and sacrifice their time and give up things so they could be here. See, they're doing all of that. And we would say, wow, that sounds really good. It is. And you have patient endurance. In other words, when the society around them starts getting on their case and pressuring them, they don't lose it. They're not the kind of people who are getting sassy and really angry at people on the internet because they don't hold our views. That's not who they are. Patient endurance. And you you cannot bear those who are evil. So you put the test up there. Their ministry test, they pass it. The endurance test, they pass it. Now they're going to go to the doctrinal. See, they are pure doctrinally because they're being tested about what they believe about false prophets and people who say they're apostles, but they're really not, coming in and spreading heresies and trying to water down the truth. See, they don't tolerate any of it. So they've got a church statement, a doctrinal statement, and they're keeping it, and they're making sure everybody in the congregation is doing it, right? So they got the doctrine down, ministry down, patience down, endurance when they are maybe being persecuted, they got the doctrinal thing down. I know you endure patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So in all of this, they don't get tired of it. They don't just say, oh, I'm, not, I'm stopping going to church, or I'm not doing this anymore. I'm looking out for number one. Safety, me first. That, they would not do that. They're not that kind of church. But they have a problem. On the outside, they're Fantastic. But they got a problem. And it's on the inside. And it says in verse 4, but, and that word is crucial because there are, in the Greek language, there are different adversatives that hold weight that are more intense and stronger than others. This is the strongest way that you can make a contrast. Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm looking at your church and look at all the things on the outside. You do all these things and you are awesome at this. But... In super big contrast to that, I gotta tell you, I'm not impressed, and here's why. Because I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Do you remember, for those of you who are married, when you first started dating? Remember that? I went to Pillsbury Baptist Bible College, very conservative. Bible college, girls and guys weren't allowed to do, you know, you couldn't just go off and do things you wanted with each other. They had this thing called the dating parlor. That's how long ago it was. You could go in there and they had a monitor, a monitor that would sit at the desk. And as a girl and guy, they had chairs and couches all over. It was pretty big. And you could sit probably 40 people in there. Now, I dated a couple of girls in college and stuff, but I wasn't going in there. I would never take any, and the reason was is because guys and girls would sit there, and I'd walk through there just to laugh. Because <laughs> you'd go in there, and they'd be sitting on the couch. Now, mind you, you're not the only one in there. There's like 30 other people in there, and they're all talking like this. Like, oh, you, you're so beautiful, and I, I love you. I'm going, hurl. I mean, and there's, and there's people looking at me, going like, you can't be doing that. Their eyes are like saucers, and you're looking, they're so great and stuff. And most of them only dated three times, and they broke up. 
But they're acting like, you know, all googly and all that stuff like that. And I'm going like, sick. But that's what, they're doing it, you know. But when you first start dating someone, you think all that. And then when you first get married, remember, oh, honey, I'll do the vacuuming. No problem. I'll take that out. Oh, you look great today. And then what happens? Five years later, or five months later, okay, five weeks later, can you vacuum? I don't really want to. It's broke. Can you fix it? Where is this? And I can't believe, can you pick that off the floor? What is wrong with you, you slob? Right? What happens? The love you had at first. You get this job, the dream job, the dream career. This is the start of it. They tell you, you're going to need to be, we're starting at 8 o'clock, 7.45, minimally, you're there. The first week, you are there. You're telling, yes, sir, oh, you can't go, to, yeah, I'll get, the, I'll get that, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And you're there. You're talking about home, you take work home, oh, yeah, I'll do that for you. Three weeks into it, 7.59, right? And then later on, I can't believe my boss stinks, right? Why? Where is the love that you had at first? No more googly eyes. <laughs> Your boss ain't that great. Paycheck, not enough. The work's too hard. What happens? You lose it. Interesting. Chapter 2, verse 19. Can you look at it? Different church. Look at the words, though. Compare the two churches. I know your works. Now watch. Ephesus has no mention of the love except in a bad that they lack it. This church says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your servants. Same thing, patient endurance. Now watch this, though. And that your latter works exceed the first. Now that's reverse. You've left your first love. And then remember down one more verse, it says, you need to go back and do the works you had at first. The love you had at first is gone, and with it, the works you had at first. But they were doing works. But they weren't doing the same ones anymore, and they, they certainly weren't doing them the same way. Now, this church over here in Thyatira, they were saying their works had become better. Now, here's what I got out of that. You know what happens? Listen, you know what happens when you become apathetic on the inside? That you're not growing anymore. See, now your works become secondary because your love for Jesus has become secondary. You kind of marginalize it. So I've noticed this. People who are apathetic don't know that they are because they don't see it. Because they still come to church and they still do things. But they don't do the same things they used to do. And they don't do them the same way they used to do. See, this church in Thyatira, their latter works, in other words, as time progressed, their works got better. But not Ephesus. They got become secondary in their lives. And things begin to slip. What does he say about it? Remember, therefore, verse 5, from where you have fallen, see the three words, remember, repent, restore. Can, if those are the causes in the first four verses, the cures are those three R words. Remember, repent, and he says, Restore. Remember what you have fallen from. Do you remember those days? How about this one? When you first got saved. That's the serious one. When you first got saved. Someone tell me what your Christianity was like 
when you first got saved? Or what do you think the average person, when they first get saved, what happens to them? What are they like? Not usually apathetic. What are they like? And what, are they, what, is, what is it like when you first get saved? Sandy. Yeah, they're, they're so zealous and intense and non-apathetic that people have to calm them down and tame them down a little bit, right? You know, you can't just go up and tell Aunt Agnes you're going to hell tomorrow, right? You, you can't do that, okay? But they're so intense about why? Because they're so burdened now that they were going to hell and they're not anymore. They don't want anybody else to go. So they're going down the street and telling everybody, hey, you, you know, and they're intense about it. They have completely no indifference, that's for sure. What else? What happens when you first get saved? What about your relationship to the Bible? I think what happens when people get saved is they start saying, wow, I've never read that before. And, Ooh, I, you know, and they go, I'm in a Bible study. And then two weeks later, I'm in three Bible studies. I'm in a Bible study and I scheduled one while I was working. I forgot about that. You know why? Because they can't get enough of it. They're listening to podcasts, and they start listening to Christian music, and they start doing this, and they, you know what? They have so much, they can't get enough of it. Oh, and they find out this God, they find out Bible truths that you've known for 20 years, and you, you're kind of laughing to yourself because that's an old thing, but for them, it's brand new, and they're so excited about it. They want to wear a Christian t-shirt now, and they want to have all these kind of things, and I'm doing this ministry, and I'm doing that. Why? Because they've got a new passion, Right? That's when they have a love at first love. Where does that go? Because remember what we said? What are the things that people have, are apathetic about as Christians? What is it? They stop reading their Bible so often. Now they go, yeah, I read my Bible, and they say, you know, and they don't want to tell you, do you read your Bible every day? No one likes that question. And because they usually say, well, not every day. You know, there are occasions, you know, I'm busy, I can't, you know. But they don't want to really say, well, I just don't read it that much. It wouldn't even be close to every day. But it used to be. I don't pray, I pray, but only when there's a crisis or an emergency. But what happened when you just love to pray? And to spend time with God. I used to be so zealous about witnessing to people, and now I'm just controlled by fear. What will people say? What if I don't have the right answer? And I come up with a lot of excuses. Did I say that? Excuses for not doing it. And they used to be at all the services. They used to come early to the services. They stay there. They talk to people, make relationships, stick around afterwards. They just couldn't get enough of it. And now they're kind of... Mm-mm. They're not here as much. They kind of make it come and go. If something else comes up more important or better or more entertaining, they might be somewhere else. What happens? They've left their first love, the love they had at first, and with it, the works that went with it. What they need to do is remember. Remember what it says? Remember where you've fallen from. You know what they tell couples that marriage has become apathetic to them. The love for their spouse is apathetic. What do you have to do? You know what some people do? And I understand why. It's a good thing. You renew your vows. Why? Because you're remembering what? I'm remembering what I promised you. That I would do this and this and this and this. And what is the hope in doing that? Because standing in front of someone and saying a few words for a few minutes, is that really the answer? No. What's the idea behind it? 
They're thinking that if you remember and say the vows again, that you'll remember the commitment that went with it. And if you reignite the commitment, maybe you're going to reignite the passion and the intensity that you had when you said them when you first started. Because what are you doing? You're at secondary love, and you're going to come back here to rekindle and put a flame or fire under the first love you had, right? That's the goal of it. And they may even go on a, you ever heard people go on a second honeymoon? Why? Well, one of the reasons is maybe they need that. And none of you are never going to go on either one of those ever again, probably after that. But that's what people do it for sometimes, I think. See, here he says, remember. Maybe it's good tonight. Remember when I used to be like that? And listen, I understand this. And I want to say something. The older you get, and I'm getting close to 60, I know you can't do all that you used to do, per se. But can I say this as nicely as I can? Don't use that as a crutch. You, don't, you can't do all the physical things that you do, but you can still do things for Jesus and a lot of things, and you can still give him your time, and you can still sacrifice. And, and don't let this, t- don't say this, well, now that I'm almost 60, I'm going to relax a little bit. Relaxing is for heaven, right? Let's not show God when we get to the throne of God and say, Lord, look at this seashell collection. Aren't you impressed? Let's not do that. Let's show him, hey, see the people I brought with me? Let's show him that. Apathy, it's easy to get sunk into it, isn't it? So he says, remember, and then he says, watch this, repent. Now, I want you to listen because I got three minutes. He says, repent, and if you don't repent, here's what he's going to do. I'm going to come and remove your lampstand from its place. There's only one other place in the book of Revelation I studied this week with that little phrase, remove from its place is. It's Revelation chapter 6 and verse number 14. You don't have to turn there. Um, It says that, again, the same identical phrase, identical words, remove from its place. And what it means is the word remove can mean shake it or literally remove it but it's gonna, you're going to mess it up. You're going to stir it up. You're going to move it out of the way. But you're going to really shake it up. That's what the idea is. And now it's the lampstand. And the lampstand is in the church. And the lamp, well, I don't get too much here. But the lampstand was the menorah. And there's an enormous one inside the holy place in the tabernacle and in the temple. And in Jesus' day in Jerusalem, this thing was humongous. When you lit it up on special occasions, and it was lit all the time, but if you lit up all of it on the, uh, you could see it almost anywhere in Jerusalem. That's how big it was. And it had three branches on each side that came up, and it had a, a straight up beam in the middle, three branches. It was a stylized tree picturing the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. And you had, see, your light, they had three lights on this side and one on the top, seven. So seven lampstands, seven churches picturing the menorah, and the churches are to be the light that comes from God's presence shines to the nations that's what they are to be that's why at the end of this the one who conquers they get to be not a stylized tree but they get to eat from what the tree of life the tree becomes more than just symbolic it becomes what they become themselves they eat from the tree of life he says see if you live for me and style as a tree, and you shine together, and you keep your first love, he says, see, I'm going to give this to you. But if you don't, here's what he says, I'm going to remove you. 
and I'm going to come for you, and I'm going to remove it. I looked up the words, I am going to come, is only used a few places exactly, and the one in 614, remove from your place, and it says in the context that the wrath of God is going to come on them. In other words, here's what he's saying to them. If you don't return to your first love, I'm going to cut your light off. You know what? You will stop being one of the seven lights on the stand. You will cease to be my church. Now, I, this is pretty strong. You know why? I looked at all the other ones. There are some pretty bad traits of some of the other churches. I mean, really, only two of them don't have any negative things said about them. And most of them, in fact, all the other, there were way worse, in my mind, things that other churches were doing than this one. This is the only church, the only one, that God says, I'm going to remove you off the stand. Here's why I think it is. Because God doesn't like it when you and I individually or our family or our church has all the trappings on the outside but are hollow on the inside. He doesn't like that most of all. He doesn't like it. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 13, and I'll close. He says, if I am able to speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, it's worth, I'm quoting, it's worthless, nothing. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can say, understand all mysteries, interpret all revelations, if I had all of that amazing spiritual gift, I had all that, and I don't have love, it's nothing. If I, listen to this. If I give my money to the poor and I give my body to be burned at the stake, if I would do all of that and I don't have love, it gains me nothing. You know what Paul knew, what Jesus knew? That if you're doing all this stuff and it isn't out of a heart of passion and love for God and others, he hates it. This church had all the right hates. They hated the Nicolaitans. They hated the evil that was being perpetrated by false apostles. They hated things. They had all the hate down, all the things they weren't doing, but they weren't into the love part. They lacked love. They had all the don't do this part down, but they were missing do this in love. See, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, whatever you do, do it in love. They missed it. They missed it. See, apathy can also be actions, not no actions, but actions that are not done in love, are not done in care. And what we need on the inside at Faith Baptist Church and what we need on the outside is passionate people who are passionately in love with God, love with each other, and love the lost, and they do it all out of love. Pure doctrine, out of love. Serving others in the church, out of love. Hating evil and all the things around them, out of love. Because if it's not true of us, we are a nothing church. That's what Jesus says. That's about as strong as you can get. Are you fighting apathy? Get a vision of him. See him for how out there he is and how in here he is, how awesome he is, and respond to it. Remember, repent, restore back to the first that you had for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message from your word the admonition 
We don't want to be pathetically apathetic. We don't want to slip into comfortable mode, do things out of a routine, just go through the motions. We don't want to just keep doing because we've always done it. What we want to do is to be energized by your love and everything we do, whether we've done it for a short time or whether we've done it for years. God, help us to have love for you and others that our inside might match our outside, that our commitments might match our convictions, that we might never be apathetic, but pursuing constantly growing in our passion and our zeal for you and the work that you've given us to do. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.